Hello everyone, it's September 1st, 2020. So this week we're looking at a cool new thruster called NanoFeep. FEEP stands for Field Emission Electric Propulsion, if you've never heard of it. Then we're talking to Peter Beck, CEO of Rocket Lab, and I'm certain you've heard of them. All right, enough said, liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 274 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I guess you have some news for us about Insight, Dennis. Yeah, I, 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 one of the coolest missions, I think, right now, right, is mm-hmm. NASA Insight <laughs> on the red Certainly planet. one of the most and active missions, like in, ter- in terms of like newsworthy. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say there's, there's, there's a, a lot of, um, you know, drama, I think might be a mm-hmm. fair uh, description mm-hmm. for this right I, yep. but yep. also just right so it's got you know one of the two main instruments the mole right the heat probe uh, hp cubed uh, instrument is just you know was having trouble hammering and this has been oh my goodness a, mo- a year and a half now right i think i feel like it was like early last year mm-hmm. when they first kind of deployed it and then ran into the problem shortly after yeah but i'm um, covering that for a while now so yeah but it's been making it's been making such good progress and uh recently you know the insight mission uh tweeted a nice little gif showing that not only has it been you know for like i feel like a couple of months now uh underground and uh buried a little bit but now it's done some subsurface hammering with the arm still pushing down kind of on its back i guess pushing through the little bit mm-hmm. of topsoil that it did you know covered it with and you know it goes down and so it looks like you know fingers crossed it might be able to reach that you know much more significant depth than you know mm-hmm. 20 uh, you know 10 inches or however <laughs> however yeah. not that far it's gotten <laughs> yeah and you know let, let's hope that it goes down and and stays down because like i could see them you know going down a meter and then the thing backing itself back out again oh yeah 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 um which i mean it's it's interesting because like this is a problem with martian soil not necessarily the design of the mole like the the mole works on the earth like it's a good design (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. just mars is unexpected and weird but i mean scientifically though this is going to be such a cool you know if if they get it down you know to work because you you know Measuring the heat flow out of, you know, Mars is going to, we just have zero data on that right now, I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, at least nothing uh, in situ actually, you know, Mm -hmm. underground doing the measurements, so. the news funding has been secured for nanofeet manufacturer morpheus space so so this is a very small electric thruster that you can put on something like a cubesat and i think that we had mentioned it was it last week or the week before that or not i don't believe so maybe it was a different company but this one's pretty novel hmm. it's a pretty cool idea the news item is is the funding and it was covered on space news but then before i actually saw the space news article um Andrews and Danowitz, as he regularly does, um, sent in an article um, that was on DefenseOne.com. And part of the reason for that is the headlining funding uh, agency is NQTEL, which is part of the CIA. And so um, I think that's where Defense One picked it up. And it's funny, the the Defense One article is talking about it from a very specific standpoint, which is like... The money and the fact that, you know, a U.S. defense, I mean, they're not DOD, but, you know, kind of from, from that aspect is the government put money into this. They don't talk about what's cool about the company or the, or the product. So FEEP stands for field emission electric propulsion, which doesn't tell you a whole lot. 
about what is cool about NanoFeep, the engine. And so I'd done a little bit of Googling and I was like, you know what, this this sounds familiar. Let me let me go talk to somebody who knows more about this. So I uh, shot an email to um, Elena Zorzaroli Rossi uh, from Thrust Me, who we interviewed last year. And if you don't remember off the top of your head, Thrust Me makes uh, an electric motor that uses a solid fuel, uh, namely iodine. And so I was like, you know what? We're, I, I'm going to go talk to my, my electric propulsion <laughs> person. <laughs> and so, so she, uh, she had some good things to say and kind of pointed me, uh, in the right direction to learn more about this. So FEEP, uh, the technology, field emission electric propulsion. Um, it, it's a type of electro spray thruster. And what's really cool is that FEEP, well, specifically, NanoFeep uses uh, a liquid metal propellant, but I believe that FEEP as a technology um, specifically uses a liquid metal propellant. And that's crazy, right? Uh, that's, mm. that's not something that we uh, normally see in, in rocketry. So the idea is, uh, just in general terms, is if you have a liquid metal that is uh solid at the temperatures that your thruster stabilizes out at then then you'll melt the um the propellant and that's kind of the goal right having a solid propellant is really nice for a number of different reasons and so as far as i can tell all of the uh people who work in the feet technology all use uh, a metal that is solid at at their uh, at their spacecraft temperatures so so you melt your propellant um, and then using um, an electrical potential you suck it through tiny little capillaries um, once it reaches the tip of the capillary uh, it forms what's called a taylor cone um, at, at the tip of the capillary um, that then produces a filament and then the filament turns into a spray. And I'll talk more about this in a second. But basically, this is a way to take your uh, melted propellant and spray it into a nice, fine, like an aerosol. And then you can accelerate it um, just like you would um, using a normal ion thruster. So um, you can, I believe you can use a grid. You can use all these different different methods. But basically, you charge the... Um, the ions that you're spraying out into this aerosol, you, you ionize it, and then you have the opposite charge at the tip of your engine. And these little tiny bits of metal are attracted to the charge and they go flying out the end of your spacecraft. And ta-da, you have propulsion. So I was trying to visualize what's going on. And so you, you can have those uh, Taylor cones you talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that that maybe was the, sh so that's not like the shape of like the solid fuel, like as you Correct. melt it, you're not, you don't have these kind of like little cylinders of fuel and you melt the tips of them. It's rather you have a block or whatever kind of shape, and then you pump it through the capillaries. Correct. Yeah. Isn't it called that because it sort of takes a cone shape once you apply the electric field? Cause it, I mean, I, I watched a video on it and that's kind of what it looked like. It was yes. luminous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's not actually a cone. It's the sides of the cone are actually concave. Um, and then the tip of the cone is rounded until you get enough electrical potential, um, that's attracting the, um, the liquid. And then the, the rounded tip of the cone inverts and starts spraying out material. And what's weird is it actually sprays it out in a, in a filament. 
um, and then the filament breaks up. So I don't know if you guys are mm. going to be familiar with this, but there was a um, a TikTok meme or a challenge uh, over the last, uh, I think it was about a year ago, where you could actually get something very, very similar to happen uh, with liquid eyeliner. And so what you would do is you would actually uh, unscrew the tip of the liquid eyeliner and pump the um, the applicator up and down as if you were trying to coat it. But in that pumping motion, you would build up a static charge. And then when you pulled the applicator out, um, it would actually spray liquid eyeliner all over the place. And it would do it in uh, little tiny strings uh, like filaments. Um, yeah, Colin in the chat posted a link. So I'll, the link that uh, that Colin put in uh, the chat will go in the show notes. And so I don't know if that's actually a tailor cone that's happening in the eyeliner, but it's a very similar kind of process. So, right, you melt your metal, you get it up through a capillary so that you can spray it. I think this is actually um, what makes it an electro spray motor. I don't know if all electro spray motors use this same effect, but it's really interesting that it works with liquid metal, right? I mean, something that's so dense and heavy seems like it would be really hard to uh, move from a liquid state into uh, a state where you can actually use it to accelerate, you know, to, to provide thrust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this is a really cool way of doing it. So anyway, um, Morpheus Space's uh, nano feet m- motor, and they also have, I think it's called multi feet, um, but their, their nano feet motor um, uses gallium. Now, a couple of different options exist out there. Um, practically speaking, uh, the company Unpulsion has flown an indium powered engine. Um, and they, they've flown it a couple of times. And actually, they're the, the most seasoned, uh, FEEP motor on the market right now. Another hmm. company called Busek also built an indium motor and it actually flew on the Lisa Pathfinder mission. What's interesting about Lisa Pathfinder is originally they were planning on doing all of their station keeping with an electric, an electric motor. Um, they were going to be using a cesium engine, um, which was also interesting because it used a slit shaped emitter. And I, I have no idea what the implications of a slit, slit shaped emitter uh, are, but they ran out of time and they ended up having to use a, uh, a cold gas thruster, which is what we talked to Dr. McNamara about. Boy, way back in the early yeah, days of the show. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, indium is the only, the only metal or the only, uh, yeah, liquid metal, uh, propellant that's flown other than, uh, other than gallium, um, used in the, in the nano feet motor. Um, and, and I'll talk about when nano feet has flown, uh, in a little bit, but so, it uses gallium and they actually on their uh, website, their website is one of those um, very dynamic animated kind of websites that drive me nuts. Um, but they do have a, a PDF that you can click on really quickly <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and see a, a, all their data presented in a more palatable manner. Um, but their products PDF indicates that they actually have two propellants. Um, one is their, uh, their standard gallium propellant, but then they also mention a new propellant, um, which I believe is just a, uh, uh, an alloyed gallium, um, that, you know, they have done some material sciences, um, which you'll hear more about 
uh, interesting material science in two weeks. Uh, spoiler. Um, but they have uh, uh, this metallic alloy that they use that increases their thrust um, as well as their total impulse. So I, I believe it's uh, uh, densified, uh, perhaps. So uh, why would you ever want to use a liquid metal as your propellant instead of uh, a noble gas, which, you know, might, might behave in a more, in a more ideal manner. Well, there's one huge benefit and that's a higher ISP. And of course that makes sense. You have a higher molecular weight. So you've got a higher momentum, uh, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, what didn't occur to me until I talked to Elena is the fact that there's also a better ISP to power ratio. Cause remember in electric propulsion, um, the more power you use, the better your ISP is. You have a variable ISP engine, which is bizarre. Um, and, uh, in this case, you, uh, you do indeed get a better ISP to power ratio. For reference, NanoFeep can do somewhere between 3000 and 8500 uh, seconds worth of ISP. Um, I don't know what their ISP to power ratio is, but 3000 to 8500 is really darn good. 8500 on the high end. Uh, that's, that's incredibly efficient. Uh, oh, actually I said that the wrong way around. Uh, the, the more power you use, the lower your ISP, but the higher your thrust is. Um, and so the, the high end of this ISP scale is, is using less power and getting lower thrust. So the downsides to this sort of technology is that, um, you have a, a poorer thrust to power ratio, uh, compared to a noble gas. And, and that also makes sense, right? You're going to spend more power accelerating, uh, your metals. Um, but I also think there might be a more subtle, um, connection here where it's harder to, um, to get metals to take up a, a, a charge potential, right? You, you, the higher, the higher the potential is, the better the engine's going to be. And so I think, that might be part of the issue here. But, but another really like shot in the foot kind of, uh, downside is that we're talking about very, very long startup times to actually get your engine heated up and producing your maximum thrust. I don't know, uh, what kind of time scales NanoFeep, uh, is experiencing, although they do, they do really like talking about using it, uh, using their engines in, Leo on CubeSats. And, uh, Elena was saying that because, you know, you, if you have a long enough heating time, uh, it actually doesn't really work in Leo if you have a small enough battery because you pass into the eclipse and then you have to continue to power your engine off of batteries. And that's, you know, your highest discharge time is when you have your, your engine powered up. And if you turn your engine off at night, it starts to cool down and you get poor performance once you get back down, back over to the mm -hmm. day side. So a, as a reference, uh, and pulsion, uh, their motor takes some, something on the order of two to three hours. I, I think Elena said two and a half hours to actually get through the, the startup phase. And that's, you know, that's multiple orbits in Leo. So just a couple of reference numbers for NanoFeep. Um, it pulls anywhere between 0.2 and 0.3 watts per engine. And they get either one to 20 nanonewtons 
or uh, sorry, micronewtons. Micro. Yeah. Uh, ten, 10 to 20 micronewtons in their dynamic thrust range. And they, they cite a higher number, uh, 40 micronewtons for their maximum thrust. So I, I, looking at the, the different stats that they have, I don't think of that is stacking two engines on top of each other. It kind of sounds like it's a not dynamic range where they can go, okay. If you want to dial it in, you can go two to 20, or if you want to just go all out, you can go up to 40, but it, it's not, it's not super clear from their materials. And, uh, of course the one to 20, uh, micronewtons is for one motor. Um, they sell them nano feet. The package comes with two motors and then, uh, multi feet comes in six motors. And then they also have different configurations that they like where they can, uh, put four nano feeps together. So they have, four separate power systems um and you get eight uh eight motors obviously but you have to have multiple power systems so that's the motor it it does have some heritage i suppose is one way to put it they've flown it once i don't know if that counts as heritage uh, but they have flown it once uh on the uwe4 cubesat back in 2018 and what's interesting is if you look at materials from the time morpheus space is not in any of them because back then they were still uh technical university dresden and since mm. that mission uh they have founded a new company the the founders uh, went off and made their own company and, and named it Morpheus. Also, Morpheus claims that UWE4 was the first CubeSat with proven electric propulsion. And I don't know how they're defining that. UWE4 did deorbit using electric propulsion. So maybe they're saying, okay, from CubeSats only, Let's find uh, all the missions that have had electric propulsion. Okay, great. Then we're going to throw out all the CubeSats that had electric propulsion that were only demos. They weren't achieving a mission goal. I, I don't, I don't know. So to get back to the news article, um, they have completed uh, Morpheus Space now that they're their own company. They've completed um, their first venture, venture capital round. They raised an undisclosed amount of money. But the people who were involved in the funding, there, there's some really big names. And of course, you know, a lot of VC firms just use shotgun methods where they just fund a bunch of people because a lot of them are going to fail. So it's not unsurprising to see big names, but there, the list of, of funding companies, it's like all big names. Like I think I recognized like 70% of the names on this list. So pretty cool. I, I, I hope they succeed because, you know, we need as many different small sat propulsion options as we can get. And now's an amazing time to be starting up a company in this field. So that one CubeSat that you had said that they had launched when they were under this other name, um, was this the one, according to the article that I'm looking at here, uh, was actually the first, and this is the first, this was uh, the first CubeSat to do a collision avoidance maneuver? Yes. Which is what their claim is? Okay, because that's pretty cool for a yeah, CubeSat, and, I mean. Well, hmm. and, and it's not only cool for a CubeSat, but it's actually... But pretty amazing for electric propulsion because, you know, electric propulsion is, is fantastic for collision avoidance because you don't have to put out too much delta V and you don't have to do it quickly because you, you know, these things ahead of time. Um, but the problem is the long startup time that we see out of other FEEP engines. Um, and, um, after talking to, uh, Elena, my expectation is that 
The fact that they were able to do that either indicates that they were doing extremely long-term collision avoidance or that their startup is uh, is more manageable where they could actually, uh, you know, do this in under a couple of days um, where you, you know, yeah. you don't need two, you know, weeks worth of, uh, of foresight to be able to plan your move and then to heat up the thruster and actually do the burn, which, you know, take, takes place over a long period of time. So yeah, that, that's potentially a, a, a pretty cool thing. So you, you had said that it takes a couple hours after startup for it to reach its maximum efficiency, kind of, because it needs to charge up. So, I mean, is it possible that maybe they just, you know, did this maneuver like rather quickly and that it wasn't the highest efficiency in terms of yeah. ISP, that maybe they just wanted to get it out of the way? So maybe, you know, they didn't do things according to yeah, the book, so, as usual. Yeah, so maybe I didn't explain that super well. The, the, the warm-up time is not just getting to your operating thrust and ISP, uh, or not, not just getting up to your operating ISP, it's getting up to any reasonable amount of thrust because you have, mm. to, especially if you have, um, a fuel that you're melting, you have to heat that. And then, um, there's some subtlety of, of, uh, feet propulsion that I don't understand where it takes, you know, two and a half hours to get not any thrust, but I, I my understanding is more than just like a mm. residual kind of thrust where it's just like a little yeah. tiny squeak to actually get up to, to a measurable thrust. And then of course, two and a half hours, if your burn is going to be for, you know, an hour long burn or, you know, whatever it is at that point, two and a half hours sounds like a lot. But if you're talking about, you know, doing or interplanetary burns where you're burning for mm -hmm. years, it's not not that big of a deal, assuming you're doing a, a mm -hmm. constant burn instead of pulsed. But um, the real key here is if it takes two and a half hours to warm up and actually be able to use that motor, that's not super practical for a CubeSat in low Earth orbit. You just don't have the kind of power that you need to be able to do that. So like NanoFeet, so that they take up to three watts worth of power to maintain that over a 20 minute eclipse for a CubeSat. I mean, I, I, I'm no expert, but that doesn't sound very feasible at all. Okay, let's just do three short sweets. What is the first one, Ben? All right, SLS takes a brief break. Residing at Stennis' B2 test stand since January, the SLS core stage has passed four of its eight green run tests before pausing activities due to Hurricanes Marco and Laura. The four tests checked mechanical stresses on the rocket, avionics performance, and evaluated fail-safes in the propulsion system, with the delayed fifth test devoted to the TVC and hydraulics of the rocket. Fortunately, testing should resume shortly, with the goal to finish test five by the week of September 7th. The remaining tests are a simulated launch sequence, loading and unloading the propellants, and an eight-minute firing of all four RS-25 engines. Meanwhile, the development baseline cost for the SLS system has increased to $9.1 billion, a 30% increase over original estimates. This will trigger a formal congressional notification and rebaselining, although at this point it's unlikely for Congress to make any major changes to the program. Next up, Starliner's schedule falls further behind Crew Dragons. 
Boeing has announced that it will redo the uncrewed demo flight of the Starliner spacecraft in December or January with a crewed flight called Starliner 1 following next summer if the former is successful. Last December, the spacecraft reached orbit but failed to get to the ISS due to a mission elapsed time anomaly and suffered from numerous software issues. While delays have plagued both programs, this would put a crewed Starliner flight about one year behind SpaceX's successful crewed mission Demo 2. Meanwhile, NASA has announced that astronaut Jeanette Epps will join Sunita Williams and Josh Cassida on Starliner's first operational, i.e. non-demo, flight, scheduled for sometime in 2022. Epps was originally assigned to fly to station on a Soyuz in mid-2018, but due to crew changes was not on the expedition. This will be her first space flight. Finally, a Russian space station module arrives at Baikonur. So this is really unexpected. So under development for more than 20 years and intended to have launched in 2007, the long-delayed Nauka Research Module, a.k.a. the Multipurpose Laboratory Module, or MLM, has finally arrived at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan earlier this month. The bus-sized module will be the largest element sent to the station since the Zvezda in 2000, and the last element of any size since the Rosvet docking module in 2010. Flaws in its propulsion system and other issues have delayed the science module's launch, but after passing vacuum testing and other readiness checks, Nauka is on track to launch on a proton in the spring or summer of 2021. So that's a big deal because uh, that's like a whole new module, and I never thought it would launch, ever. Big old one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, seriously, like, I had kind of forgotten about it, but now that it's in the news again, like, I don't know, it's just really cool. All right, welcome to the interview segment. And today we have a very special guest with us, Peter Beck, the founder and CEO of Rocket Lab. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks, guys. Okay, so let's let's jump right in. I, I wanted to start off with talking about Electron and the Rutherford engine. Uh, so easy first question. You're famous for your mission names. Uh, who names the missions? Is this a collaborative <laughs> effort or does it come straight down from the top? No, no, it's a collaborative effort from um, from, from the whole team. So um, you know, generally, we'll we'll every few months we'll we'll cast a kind of a ballot for a whole lot of bunch of people and um, Chris company and then we'll get a whole bunch of names and then um, we, we keep them in stock and then down select um, down select for a mission the, the odd occasion is just one that's just super obvious that right. comes from the top but running gen- out of fingers it's a, yeah or it's a test gen- but generally it's a democratic process Mm-hmm. So whose idea was that though in the first place? Because it's such a funny idea that who thought of it? Well, I mean, um, in New Zealand, if, if you if you come to New Zealand, you'll be driving down the road and you'll see a, a name of a creek, and it'll just be like mm-hmm. Creek mm-hmm. One, Creek Two, Creek Three. So <laughs> it's 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 almost it's almost a little bit New Zealanderish, but um, mm-hmm. for it to test, it was it was obvious. What are we going to call this? And we decided that you know the name, the official name that we were giving to. Um, you know, to the guys over at, at um, Space Command, and this would be the name that would be on all of their their screens and their sheets and everything. Instead of just calling it like RLO zero zero one, we thought, well, let's let's run all the words together and call it exactly what it is. So if it goes pear shaped, then they know that it was a test. <laughs> so that, that's where the original "it's a test" came from for a name. Okay. <laughs> so since uh, right, it's a test was the first um, test launch for the Electron. How much has the uh, rocket changed since then? Very little, very very little. I mean, we we started off um, from day one, you know, trying to build something that would be, you know, the vehicle that we produce and fly for a very long time. You know, all the design decisions weren't weren't around how do we get to orbit 
the fastest. They were around, um, you know, how, how do we how do we build a vehicle that was really really mass producible? Mm. So as a result, there's there's really from flight one to now, there's there's really no change. And there's a few tweaks here and there for increasing you know increasing reliability and process flows and things like that. But honestly, like there's no wholesale exchange of components. I mean, I think probably the biggest change we made to the vehicle is um, was going from um, traditional flight termination into AFTS that was as far as hardware changes that was one of the you know one of the biggest changes and I guess uh, th- this might be a, a little bit of a foolish question but how has it changed since you started design I mean it, is the rocket <laughs> that you have now kind of what you envisioned back at the beginning well actually the first electron was one meter in diameter instead of 1.2 and made out of stainless steel believe it or oh, not wow, wow. Um, yep but we just could not get the mass fractions with stainless steel that we we needed from um, you know that we could easily get with carbon. So um, so yes, no. It, the the early years it changed uh, it you know it changed quite a lot. But the the key fundamentals um, and the payload class didn't really change very much. But um, mm. you know the architecture um, moved around a fair bit. Have the manufacturing techniques changed at all? Is that something that's kind of been you know like streamlined since then yeah i mean even even from day one you know when we'd made the decision to go for carbon one was you know it was, it was for you know, mass fraction but also for manufacturing so uh you know we, we manufacture the large carbon tubes all of the bulkheads on stage one and stage two are identical um, there's a lot of commonality throughout the whole launch vehicle and you basically start off with the you know the cylindrical tube bond in a couple of uh domes and bulkheads and you know there's your tank so there's no painting there's there's no any you know, kind of passivating or you know post-processing it's, it's pretty much that and and even you know the rosie the robot which is a large mm-hmm. robot basically processes all of these stages you know the that was that was hard-coded in from day one that that's that would be where we wanted to end up so um you know a lot of fixturing and and the way that um, you know, the, the segregated interstage and all those kind of things were um, ready from day one. So so how does that differ from other rocket manufacturers' processes? Do you know? Because like, um, mm. there are definitely some people who are, are very complex and uh, and some who are very simple. Like, where, where does yours fall along the spectrum and, and what advantages do you gain of, over your competitors? I would say uh, tank technology is really complex, which ultimately leads to a really simple manufacturing process. So, you know, these are lineless carbon composite tanks. The wall thickness is, is about 1.8 millimeters monolithic. So they're not, um, they don't have any core or structure or anything in them. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time, you know, making the, um, the, the, the resins and the tanks, uh, locks compatible and then cryogenically mm-hmm. compatible as well. Um, and, you know, when, when you've got a change from a composite to a metallic joint, that's really difficult because, you know, the composite has a thermal expansion of almost nothing. And then um, comparatively, you put a metal beside it and it's moving all over the show. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of kind of complex joints and, and, and kind of material science in there. But ultimately, you know, it makes for a very, very simple process. And if you compare that to a traditional aluminum tank, you know, you start off with, um, with sheets of aluminum and depending on how carried away you want to get your machine and isogrids and then bump roll them around and then friction stir weld them and then once you have a tank then you passivate them and and then paint them and, and there's a lot of you know a lot of processes um, you have to crack detect all the welds and on and on it goes so you know comparatively speaking we, we put all of the effort into the R&D up front um, hmm. to to be able to produce a you know ultimately now a really simple monolithic composite structure it seems 
a little odd to to do it that way. I mean, it, it totally makes sense, but you know, we've seen so many companies um, try to do that and and fall flat on their face when mm. they can't produce a product. What what do you think allowed you to to be able to do it that way? Well, my background was in composites, um, so that. I always gravitate towards the black stuff, and um, <laughs> you know, if if you're if you're going to make like a composite fairing, because you know that that's the most mass efficient way of doing it, and then you know the bit below the fairing, it's like ah, oh, we need to make a composite kick stage, and then well, let's make a composite interstage, and it's like ah, oh, screw it, let's just make the whole thing composite, because then you don't have any of these, you know, you don't have any of these metallic composite joints, and mm-hmm. and you know you're far better to stick with that one material, and once you've stood up a division to to produce you know, a bunch of composite parts, producing a bunch more is, is, is really efficient rather than having a whole lot of processing. Like we don't, we don't have any welding in the vehicle, uh, or apart from some high pressure stainless steel lines for the engine, but there's, there's, wow. you know, there's, there's basically, there, there is no welding in the vehicle. Wow. So brackets and things like that, which normally you would, you, you know, you, you might make out of metallics and then weld and whatnot. We just produce them in one piece carbon molds and just pop out. Um, you know, complete composite brackets. So, um, once you kind of down select to a material like that and you, you build the capability in house, then, um, the idea is to leverage that as much as possible. Wow. Mm. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> One of the interesting things I think about, you know, the electrons in particular is how you chose to use batteries to drive the turbo pumps. Mm. Um, how early in the design was that kind of selected and frozen in there very early in fact when i went up to silicon valley to um to, to pitch for the a round i actually carried a turbo pump with me mm-hmm. so an electric pump with me so i had it had that in a little little case and um we'd actually run all of the the, the fundamental tests on it to show that yep we could achieve the pressures and flows required and we had a good idea of um you know of, of the battery requirements and we'd even proven that um you know through through running one that we could um you know, we could meet the batteries would meet all the requirements that um, that were there. So that was baked into the design really, really early on. And 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 then like I know you've made upgrades over the years. So how how difficult were those, or were they pretty straightforward? Well, the majority of the performance upgrades over the over the last couple of years that you know that that we've released out of Electron is is really just software. So mm. uh, you have a defined mm. battery capacity, and the way we use the batteries is is even though they're they're a secondary cell, we use them like a primary cell. So you know you, you're never um, you're never going to go and you know grab uh, like a, a stage two battery pack and pretend to recharge it because it's it's just it's just hosed. Like we mm. we, we we run the batteries in, in such a such a way that um, basically they're on the verge of thermal runaway, which is great because you get huge amounts huge, huge amounts more energy, but um, you know doesn't lend themselves to being recharged, mm. which we don't. You know, when you're ejecting them off into into space to re reenter and burn up, we don't really care about that. Mm. So, you know, we we really push those batteries hard, and and really the majority of the performance release has been um, just understanding those the, the battery technology better and better. And of course, battery technology is continues to innovate and and move to um, higher mass densities every year. So we announced some some pretty decent upgrades to to the electron performance um, earlier this year and all is that that is that is a substitute of battery cells. That is all that is. Were you able to find the same form factor? I mean I'm assuming that the batteries are, mm-hmm. are custom, but did you have to yeah. work to 
to get them into the the same volume? Yeah, not not. I mean, yes, they're 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 a custom uh, format, but it's it's purely chemistry. So we we just changed a little bit of the cell chemistry, and um, mm. and everything looks the same. And, and you mentioned um, primary versus secondary cell. That's like not rechargeable versus rechargeable, right? Correct. Sorry. Yeah. And, and so your your batteries are secondary by virtue of just being lithium polymer, right? Or, or is there a primary version of lithium polymer? No, no, they are secondary in, okay. in the version of a lithium, lithium polymer. Um, okay. But, and, you know, we when we do the stack test, we actually stack test on all of the, you know, the flight batteries, um, wow. stage test on the flight batteries, and then we just top, top them off. Um, ready, ready for um, you know, on and on launch day, of course, we're topping them off and keeping them conditioned, and then and then ready to go. Oh, that's that's actually really fantastic. I mean, you know, f- test what you fly, fly what you test, and it's the ultimate, right? To, yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, um, when these batteries are dropped off of the second stage, I, I guess that's probably their second or third cycle. I mean, I don't know how much testing you do, but they're basically brand new batteries, like you said. Yep. And, and, you know, part of it is really characterizing, um, the degradation, you know, of the cells during those, those testing. And, and we, we always carry very large margins on those batteries and, you know, releasing a little bit of margin, you know, also has, has, has helped gain some performance. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's uh, nine, 962 cells on, on a, an entire electronic mm-hmm. vehicle. Wow. So you had mentioned uh, the recent upgrade to your batteries. Um, since these are not like, you know, the kinds of off-the-shelf batteries that you would need for like general public use, um, do you foresee any, I guess, near-term upgrades to batteries that are coming down the pipe? Like, do you keep up to date on what's going on in uh, that technology space? Like, do you think that, you know, there might be some big upgrades coming in the next couple of years or are you not betting on that? No, I mean, we we, we, we certainly uh, keep very close out of the ground. You know, we have uh, battery team. Uh, it's led by um, uh, PhD in, in, um, in battery chemistry. So you know him and the team you know keep a very close eye, on, and we're, we're continually working on on battery. Um, we, we draw the line at, at developing our own chemistry, but uh, we work mm-hmm. with partners to, um, you know, mm-hmm. to to keep keep a really good handle on where things are moving. But um, the, the question is, you know, if battery technology doubled. Um, we're kind of optimized with everything else right now. So, you know, even, even if capacity, um, and, and mass doubled and halved, it wouldn't, probably wouldn't move the needle for us much at this point. At this point, we would need to, you know, make changes to the Rutherford mm. itself rather than just running the pumps mm. harder. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about recovery. Um, one of our Patreon supporters, Anderson DeNova, um, asked what factors, um, you considered when you were choosing to do mid-air recovery. Um, he said that it, it kind of makes sense to him that electric propulsion should make propulsive landing easier because it should, in theory, be easier to relight that engine. Um, but you decided not to go that route. So what were some of the things that were weighing on you in that decision process? It's pretty easy. It's fundamental physics, really. I mean, in order to do propulsive landing, you need to carry about one third of your propellant reserves. So um, on a small launch vehicle, Everything is, you know, it's so much harder on a small launch vehicle than it is a large launch vehicle to meet your payload mass fractions. Um, because I call it the, you know, the pressure transducer quandary is, you know, on a small launch vehicle, you use the same pressure transducer as you would on a large launch vehicle and the same number of them. Mm-hmm. But on a large launch vehicle, a pressure transducer might account for 0.00001% of the mass. Whereas a small launch vehicle, it might count for 0.001% of the mass. Mm-hmm. So you're always, you're always in a hole. 
um, from a mass perspective. And you, you just you just you just can't afford to carry anything extra at all. So you know if you're going to put a third of propellant, keep a third of propellant in there for um, propulsive return. Um, now you no longer have a small launch vehicle; you have actually something quite large. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have a medium class launch vehicle. So which is fine, but I mean it costs a lot more. A lot more handling of the vehicle gets much much more difficult. You've got to build new pads, and on and on it goes. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, you might as well just build a much larger launch vehicle and call it quits. Um, mm-hmm. So the only way that, that it closes for a small launch vehicle is to let the atmosphere do the work. Mm-hmm. So that's the approach that we took is, um, you know, trying to, we, we have this lovely cushion that is the atmosphere um, that enables us to um, to use it to uh, scrub off velocity. And then all, all the rest of the complexity goes into ground assets instead of launch vehicles. So uh, helicopters and boats and all those kinds of things, um, which are relatively simple, are required rather than um, trying to make a, a completely new launch vehicle that's, that's much larger. So there's always a trade somewhere. E- either you trade it into size and complexity of a launch vehicle or into ground asset. So we traded into ground asset. So um, we've heard talk about uh, aerothermal deceleration instead of retropropulsion. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling confident based on uh, the recent data collection that you've been doing? Well, as confident as you ever can be, scorching in at Mark 8 through the atmosphere. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, right. Uh, you know, the last uh, flight um, flight 9 and 10 were, were super good. Um, you know, we, we tracked and received healthy telemetry from the stage all the way to the impact into the ocean. Um, oh, nice. So, so you know, we know that the stage uh, re-entered and we're able to, uh, you know, had a full guidance nav solution on board with uh, little RCS rocket thrusters that kept it orientated in, in the direction mm-hmm. we wanted. And we're able to do that a couple of times in a row. So, and, and we know that the stage was relatively healthy. The, the, the bottom end um, of the vehicle, you know, it, um, it's a very blunt end, so we propagate a shot um, wave nice. Nice uh, forward. Um, we saw a lot of heat damage and, and damage on that, which is to be expected. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, well, look, the rubber really hits the road, or the rocket hits the water, one of the two. Um, when we <laughs> fly Flight 17, if we can get Flight 17 back in the factory and really see what we've got, then we'll know what it's going to take. Yeah, we're taking a pretty very model heavy approach on this. Generally, we, um, mm. you know, we, we, we do quite a lot of modeling, but we use the modeling to ver- verify experimental results and, and make sure that we can, you know, use the models to make sure we have a, a solid understanding of the engineering or the physics. But this time around, mm. we've, we've spent a lot of time on the modeling and we're able to validate um, some of those models really well with the last two flights. So, um, in theory, at least, uh, this thing should, should, um, should be good. But we'll we'll see. Is launch seventeen the the Wallops launch? No, we'll see how Wallops is going. Um, but hopefully it'll be the next flight. But we're um, we're working some uh, AFTS certification stuff with NASA. We've just got to get that certified. Oh, okay. Um, so do you mind saying which payload is is your? You said flight seventeen. Flight seventeen. I believe that's a sun synchronous ride shear mission. Um, or oh, it could okay. be a mid-inclination ride-share mission. Yeah. It's a mission that we had uh, quite a lot of excess um, capacity of mass on. We can fill the rocket up with our own instrumentation experimentation. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that because it <laughs> sounds uh, promising. No, it should be good. So, right. So you did the, the, two, um, the two flights where you were collecting re-entry data, and that was sort of like snuck in, as it were, because you're you're already flying the first stage. I guess are, are you still flying the RCS thrusters? Are are you able to collect any more data, even if it's not like a dedicated data collection effort? 
how's how's that kind of work for you? Yeah, so um, we did those two flights in a row, and there really wasn't any point in continuing to instrument. Um, we, we got all the data that we needed. So, you know, and, and there is a, a mass penalty for, for, you know, carrying all of that instrumentation and uh, flight computers, reaction control systems, GPS, NAVs, and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there really wasn't a whole lot of point just continuing to run all that um, mm-hmm. on every flight because in order for us to, you know, to make use of that, we had um, aircraft um, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with um, with RF repeaters and and um, antennas on them, and we were you know kind of bridging the RF by you know airborne assets. So logistically, is a fair bit to it. Um, sure. So there wasn't wasn't too much of a point repeating that over and over. So um, we 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 um, and, it, and it takes a lot of resources from the recovery team to to do that. So it was sure. far better to just go, you know, tick that box and go right. Let's get on with the next thing, which is. Um, you know, getting one undershoots. So the team's been flat cool. out working on that. That's that's fantastic. It makes me happy to hear that you're confident enough with the two flights worth of data to go to go ahead with uh, with shoots. That's, that's really cool. I think if I recall correctly, you said that you would never pursue re- reuse and that you would eat your hat or something like that. Um, so what? <laughs> yeah. So what? So what changed your mind? Just like how did this happen that you decided to you know go for it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love public humiliation, so that's that's why I decided to go for recovery. <laughs> no. Um, so look, we I, I was standing in the factory one night and looking out at you know at a production rate of one in thirty and like, well, how are we going to double this really quickly? And um, recovery would would it would aid that. Um, and uh, not not only that, uh, you know, we we've got quite a lot of flight data um, from previous flights and. You know, the ascent on the vehicle, the thermal environment was nowhere near as, as harsh as we thought. Um, so, you know, I asked the team to let, let's run some numbers and see what we think. And we started running some numbers and it didn't look too, didn't look too crazy. Um, it was hard, but it didn't look, we didn't break any laws of physics. So, you know, it looked, it, it felt, we felt like it was something that, that we could, uh, we could have a crack at. So, um, yeah, I, I should, should learn to never say never. Uh, that's that's a good life lesson. <laughs> so before we get out of uh, electron questions, I was hoping to hear about the future of electron heavy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's one that I'll I'll still continue to say never, never say never because if I was to build a, a larger rocket, it wouldn't be a tricore. It's just a just a horrible horrible collection of, of problems. So um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that seen, wouldn't yeah. Be that. yeah. So how long did you folks spend on the? Uh, uh, April Fool's uh, Electron Heavy page because it was really good. Oh, about as long as it took us to um, push a few cores and nose cones from the line across. So <laughs> probably about ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So fantastic. It was funny because when when we originally thought we thought of it, you know, we was, saw a whole bunch of rockets down on the floor and and um, I, th- I thought of it as a joke. And then we sort of held off doing it until April Fool's, and then the whole coronavirus hit. And um, Morgan's in charge of all their comms. Said Pete, you know, the world's not thinking about funny things right now. And I'm like, oh, we mm. should make a big deal of this. We should do a press conference and really, you know, <laughs> really ham it up as a good joke. But Corona kind of destroyed mm. everybody's sense of humor, so we just did a little one on it. Sure, there's always next year. Yeah, well, you can you can do uh, electron super heavy and you know put two yeah. more on the on the sides. Um, okay, so you're going to the moon. Yes, so we're we're delivering uh, more technically correct. We're, we're delivering a, a satellite um, for, for uh, NASA, it's a capstone spacecraft to the moon. But once we okay. um, 
deploy that spacecraft on its TLI trajectory, then yes, we're continuing with our own photon spacecraft to the moon. You actually, you're uh, you're already answering some of my questions, but I guess first let's let's talk about photon. Um, you've already flown uh, a Keck stage. What are, what are the major differences between photon and and that upper stage that you've already flown? So the, the Keck stage is always intended to become a satellite, and I'm surprised that um, people didn't queue on that earlier because you know it has. It has RCS, it has comms, it has propulsion, it has power. Really, the only thing that's missing is is an ACS solution that's you know space survivable and um, solar panels. So the base photon platform is really a kick stage with some solar panels um, and some additional ACS systems. So um, you know, Star Trek has some reaction wheels and things like that. So I had, and I can't remember where I had read this, but I had read about putting rechargeable batteries on a second stage or was I thinking of uh, the kick stage instead? Uh, it's probably on our on the, the photon lunar stage. Um, so there's this the way to think of photon is um, it's a little bit confusing ironically, but um, is is that you know photon is nothing but uh, a piece of it's not it's not a piece of hardware, it's a concept. A concept where you you know you share part of the rocket mm. to build a spacecraft. So photon can look like mm. uh, a kick stage. Or it can looks like something very different. Would you know? Looks like our um, our lunar our lunar vehicle, which is you know all propellant tanks, and looks very very different to you know your standard kick stage. So think think of photon as, as a concept, and at the highest level, uh, you know electrons emit emit photons, and a photon is smaller than an electron. So that's that, that's the way to, to kind of think about it. So right, so photon is taking a a NASA payload uh, capstone to the moon, mm-hmm. right? This is what we're talking about. And you're releasing capstone into the TLI. Mm-hmm. And then you said photon is continuing to the moon. What, uh, Correct. what, what is, is it going to, uh, what's it going to do there? <laughs> I guess. I mean, what is <laughs> So, uh, you know, the secondary mission for us, and I've tasked the team with this is, is to get a sweet as, um, close up of, um, the moon's surface on a flyby. So nice. we'll, we'll, we'll nice. dispose the spacecraft into a nice big heliocentric orbit. But on the way, on the way there, it would be rude not to have a crack at um, trying to do a, a really cool flyby and, and getting getting a couple of nice images. And this kind of sets um, sets the stage for you know a Venus mission that we want to do in the future. So you know doing uh, deep space um, on orbit ops um, trajectory um, kind of modifications and refinements. Um, and making sure that we get everything, we, we get a lot of experience um, in doing that for, for future missions. And on behalf of all kind of astronomy geeks, uh, we appreciate mm-hmm. we appreciate that. Anderson in the chat asks, "Am I hearing that you're going to send back an 8K time lapse of the moon surface?" <laughs> oh, 8K! Geez, that would be a dream. That would be dream. <laughs> I'm I'm happy for a 460 by anything really. Mm-hmm. So 8K would be a dream, but we don't have the comms link. Um, to be able to do that, mm. we're getting pretty far out there at that point. So, sure. um, 640 by 480, that'll, that'll stitch together. We'll, we'll see how we can, you know, if we can do better than that, but that's kind of the threshold. So what, once you go screaming past the moon, what's your wildest dream for, for that vehicle? I mean, if, if comms wasn't an issue, what would you, what would you do with that hardware once you had it? Circling the sun. Uh, well, at that point, it's pretty much exhausted because we'll, we'll put it into a disposal um, type of orbit. But um, you know, the the nitrogen for RCS will be exhausted, and w- although we'll be able to, you know, it'll it'll stay remain powered, and we'll be able to communicate with it for who knows how long, um, but very long time, I would imagine. You know, we we really don't have any any propulsion or RCS to be able to to do anything 
um, mm. do anything sensible with it. It'll just stooge out there for a few million years. Um, and is is that photon getting uh, getting solar panels then? I, I guess. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, the lunar photon is is uh, you know it's it's a high energy um, stage. Uh, there's a lot of delta be on board, and um, yes, of course, this, this solar panel it has a new propulsion system on board. So, um, it has the the hypercurry, which is a um, it's a hypergolic um, upper stage engine, so it's a much higher performance engine than what's on the kick stage currently as a curry. You know, it's also electrically pumped. So, I think. Really, we've, we've found like the ultimate application of electric pumping, and that is um, high energy um, spacecraft propulsion. Because, um, you know, you harvest, the, you harvest the, the electrons for free while you're on orbit, charge up your batteries and then do your burns. So it's, it's the most efficient way to do it, um, you could imagine, because hmm. it's not like blowdown systems where you've got to carry copious amounts of gases. Um, you know, it's just awesome. Has this been done before with hypergalaxies? Is this something that the other spacecraft have used? Because I haven't even thought of that before. Uh, no, no, I don't think anybody's, um, you know, I think, I think we're, we're probably the, the, the first to, to really, you know, muck around with uh, electric pumping technology. So, um, whether it's hypergolic or non-hypergolic, it doesn't really make any difference. Um, but, um, you know, the, the hypergol nature just means you don't have to have an igniter. Um, but equally well, if it was a non-hyper goal, you can um, you can certainly um, achieve the same uh, efficiencies. Uh, speaking of hyper goal, so how, how's the work with the uh, the green hyper goal going? Because we had just uh, you know seen that um, the the GPIM mission mm-hmm. uh, it was just looking into that, and it's just about kind of finished itself and is kind of prepared to orbit. Um, how's how's your own work uh, going? In that. Yeah, good, good. So that that engine program is 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 going really really well. So um, you know we're we're hot firing every day and um and, and building a wealth of data and experience and um you know the uh this you know the, the hypercurry engine is um it's it's going to be a real uh, a real asset um for us and and for others to um you know if you want you know super low mass high performance uh, green hypergol then you know it's going to be I'm really excited about that, that that development. So, is this a hypergolic that you had developed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, we did all the chemistry and propellant formulation for that engine. Is it? I mean, obviously, you're a you're a rocket company, not a propellant chemistry company. Uh, how has been? How do you think manufacturing those chemicals is is going to work? I mean, I'm assuming you already have facilities. Are, are you seeing? An expectation to be able to to scale up and fill your own needs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, when you're a rocket company, you just have to you have to understand that you're you're actually an everything company anyway. Um, if you're a rocket company, you're you know you're building structures, you're building engines, um, you know you're building a lot of infrastructure. So like building engine test sites, you're building launch pads, you're building roads. I mean, we've built over thirty-two mm-hmm. kilometers of road. You're doing RF, so you know. <laughs> Throwing some propellant chemistry doesn't really matter. It's doing everything else anyway. Does the green propellant have anything to do with the thixotropic propellant that you guys were working on? Mm, oh no, yeah. that's a that's a monoprop, isn't it? Monoprop. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Although it was really, really fascinating propulsion development. I mean, so as, as you point out, um, you know, that was all um, done in house as well as a lot of um, propellant chemistry and um, uh, a lot of rheology went into that. To that program so um you know we have hmm. not not a stranger to you know, propellant developments in the past 
And then uh, are you using like an integrated propellant system uh, on uh, on Photon? Uh, or do you have dedicated propellants for the RCS system? Yeah, no, it's, it's dedicated for propellants for the RCS and for the main propulsion. You know, the kind of the, the minimum impulse bits we need out of the RCS system is, is really, really low. So, um, mm. you know, trying to do uh, hyper goals, um, you, you end up with valves and, and combustion chambers that almost get so small they're impractical. So um, mm-hmm. just we have a little bit of cold gas on board, just push it around a little bit, make it nice and simple. That makes more sense, but you you got to ask because yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, something that people are doing. So, And I'm assuming those are your own cold gas thrusters or did you buy them off somebody else? Yeah, no, we, we build everything in-house, absolutely everything. Yeah. Well, and, and cold gas, I mean, that's that's an afternoon of work for two people, right? Well, you'd, you'd <laughs> think so, but there's actually a lot more, <laughs> lot more to it than that because um, you need to characterize the valve openings really, really well and have repeated, you know, really mm. repeatable valve openings because ultimately it feeds back into your, your GNC, your guidance navigation control loop. And, um, you know, if you've got a varying impulse bit, it becomes really, really tricky to, um, you know, to get, get everything pointing where you want it. So... And then you know s- small changes in throat diameters and throat throat geometries have um, have some pretty you know big impacts. So you know it's it it sounds simple, right? You just blow a bit of cold gas around, but actually it's to to get really precision pointing. It's a bit harder than you think. I, I want to be clear. I was joking. Oh right, all right. <laughs> just, just just to be clear. But uh, I, I do appreciate simple. the discussion of, of what makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think maybe we could uh, pivot to what. Uh, I gotta imagine is the most exciting kind of thing I can think of coming from <laughs> your company right now is this talk about traveling or you know sending a mission, a, a private mission to Venus for exploration. It's wonderful. We got a lot of, a lot of questions um, as our time's wrapping up, but uh, I'd like to start. I'm wh- why Venus in particular? Because I mean Venus is it's an amazing world, but like as far as a PR department goes, it's got nothing that Mars is. Has so uh, why Venus? Exactly right, and 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 um, you know I, I I love Venus and had a long-standing fascination with that planet. And you're exactly right. Nobody nobody is Mars. Mars gets all of the spotlight because you know one one day a human footprint will be on the surface of Mars, and that is inspiring and it's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. But Venus, there's no human footprint ever going to go on the surface of Venus. But yet Venus, from a scientific standpoint, is just a treasure trove. I mean, if you look at the, the just mm-hmm. just the size of the planets between Earth and, and Venus, the same size, very very similar. And then, uh, you know, sort of no more than eight hundred million years ago, a billion years ago, Venus was was a, a much more you know kind of inhabitable place than it is now. Um, you know, it's a relatively short time ago, in you know, in, in at least geological and, and astronomical terms, it was was a very very different place and. It's, it's, it's kind of like the analogy for Earth and, and gone into a wild climate change, um, loop. So there's just so much to learn about, about the planet. Like I say, a very short time ago, it was a very, very different place. And, uh, more excitingly though, for me personally is that, you know, it's, it's kind of mutually, uh, respected that there's three places in our solar system that could potentially, mm. um, have life still today. And one of those is mm. in, you know, in a, in a really interesting spot, about 50 kilometers altitude in the Venetian clouds. So, um, you know, the, the, the biggest question that I could possibly think of to try and answer is, is, you know, is life on Earth, uh, unique or is it prolific and throughout the universe? 
and um, if you could find life in the clouds of Venus, then you would gravitate to the natural assumption that actually life is prolific. That That's a big question to answer. It's a huge question to answer. And I have a spacecraft mm -hmm. that's designed and capable of getting to Venus. So why on earth wouldn't you go there? It would just be a crime not to, really. I don't know how fully formed this, this the mission kind of profiler, you know, what the exactly what it's going to consist of. I mean, could you could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how are you going to kind of astrobiologically check things out uh, at Venus? Yeah, so um, if we talk about kind of the, the engineering to start with, so the Photon Lunar spacecraft mm. that's carrying, you know, the satellite for NASA to the to moon, capstone to, to the moon for NASA, the fundamental difference between those two spacecraft is, 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 is none, basically. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we architected that vehicle, I you know, said to Tim, okay, we're going to go to the moon, but really we're building something to go to Venus. So we made a whole lot of decisions like ranging radios. We, we don't need a ranging radio, but we do to go to Venus. So, you know, we, we down-selected onto a ranging radio uh, as opposed to just a normal radio. And then, uh, you know, RCS systems, propellant loadings, total delta V, uh, decisions like fully welded piping systems versus using fittings, like the mission to Venus, uh, sorry, the mission to the moon is sort of about eight days on orbit and then another few days to get into the TLI. So, you know, all of these, all of these things you probably, you know, you, you don't really need, but, you know, we'd architected, you know, this, this whole platform to go to Venus. So that's kind of the baseline mission. Mm. So from an engineering standpoint, the difference in the spacecraft is almost none. Where it, where it starts to differ, instead of carrying a payload or someone else's spacecraft, we we're aiming to carry a um, a reentry probe. So the you know as as we approach Venus, um, we'll uh, we'll release the probe and then do some correction maneuvers on the the spacecraft um, so that we do a flyby with the spacecraft, but the probes uh, into the into the atmosphere. So we've got a nice comms relay there, and um, we want to try and spend as much time in the in in the suite spot of the Venetian atmosphere as, as we can with the probe. And look, the jury's out. We, we have not worked out what science instrument we're going to carry because in order to, in order to, you know, make a life detector, you have to make some assumptions about what the life is. And, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's still a very, a, a big open question. So, um, we're, we're starting, you know, we've teed up with, um, with a bunch of just incredible scientists from from uh, all around the world and we're, we're really forming a fantastic science team to you know specifically go in and, and um, try and make those assumptions and, and ask some of those questions it kind of blows my mind that we're even talking about a private mission to venus like that's i know yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i think this is what's super important because to, even even if we fail to get to venus the mere fact of trying i think mm -hmm. and showing that um for, for a small amount of money and a private enterprise can actually go interplanetary, I think marks a new a new kind of uh, point in, in human history and and uh, I think it's I think it's important um, that it be a private mission, not a government mission. So uh, you know I think it, I think it moves the needle on being able to do interplanetary science for just a whole a whole different level of cost and it's it's kind of the democratization of interplanetary science. Richard, who's our community manager, points out that um, Marco really proved that exactly. satellites don't have to be big to have a big impact. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, like clearly we're, we're a ways out, but you, you said that the jury's still out on what science instrument you're going to carry. Who, who do you expect to sit on that jury? Are, are you, um, going to sit down with academics and, and find out what they would like to do? Or are you just going to pick 
uh, an instrument and go with it? Like, what what are you thinking for the future? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we're working with um, we're working with an incredible science team. Um, we, well, you know, the, the the mission is still being um, kind of uh, formed, so we'll, we'll we'll make some more formal announcements um, as you know as time goes by. Mm. But we're working with an incredible science team, and yeah, we're just we're just going through the motions of um, what what is going to yield the, the most value. And it's it's not an easy it's not an easy down select. When is when is RL Venus two gonna fly? Venus two. Well, I mean, I'd like to see us get a couple away in twenty twenty three. Um, so twenty twenty three is you know is is the great um great alignment um to to go and do it. So you know, look, we're planning for one, mm. but um, man, I, I think you know the ultimate here would be a, you know a whole series of spacecraft where we we follow a bunch of different sensors and do a bunch of different experiments and iterate on what we learn that would be that would be ideal you know if i if i was to just retire tomorrow that's what i'd dedicate my life to i would just um just just building venetian spacecraft and probes so i think it, it would it be a correct characterization then based on what i'm hearing that you're really kind of sending a venusian spacecraft to the moon it's already <laughs> <In some respects. laughs> kind of yeah so are there i mean what are the limits for photon could you see you know at some point maybe you know beyond 2023 where photon is going to mars or the asteroid belt or you know even deep you know missions yeah know. yeah like do you, have you have you given thoughts yeah we'd, we'd love to love to do that and and um we're not we're not precious about where it flies either um you know at the moment we're launching like the mm. photons on top of electron, but equally well, um, if someone wants to depart a little bit more delta v to us and we fly in somebody else's vehicle, um, that's just fine. Um, we're not we're not precious about our mm. satellite division and and where which launch vehicle they they fly on. Uh, you know, obviously wherever possible, we would love to fly them on electron, but um, you know we could uh, we we could easily you know put a, a high energy photon on on a another larger vehicle that's on its way to geo and 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 really go and do some 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 really deep stuff that would be mm. cool so you're not really just like a launch company you're you know you kind of do a little bit more than that because i hadn't even considered that so you might launch on say you know something like a falcon heavy i mean would that be out of the realm of possibility like i say we're not we're not really fussed where our satellites fly um you know the, the satellite division we spooled up late last year and it's it's just been going gangbusters so um there's you know that we have a whole division dedicated to spacecraft and and we do you know not only do we build spacecraft we actually manage other people's spacecraft on on orbit so for a government so this is a spacecraft that we haven't even built we haven't launched um but if you have all of those ground services and those those operators then um you, you can do all of those kinds of things so we're we're rocket lab is you know trying to trying to make a you know a wedge for itself in the industry is is a complete one-stop shop whether it's launch spacecraft ground ops what whatever um just bring your idea or your sensor to us and and we'll we'll get it in orbit and the, the trouble with the space industry right now is that it just takes enormous amounts of capital and specialist people to do basically anything um, of value so um, what we're trying to do is really reduce those barriers so um, it shouldn't. It should be a commodity. Like accessing space and and the data from space should should be a commodity, not not a huge, you know, highly specialist um, field that it is that is now. So that, that's that's where we're working. Um, so you know, everybody knows us for launching electrons, but the, the spacecraft division will will be as large as the. Um, you know the launch division i would say here by the end of the year mm. so it's it might seem a little uh kind of i don't know backwards a little bit but uh i actually like to ask you know now you know 
a little bit about your personal background. You know, I mean, how did you end up CEO and founder of a rocket company that and, and satellite <laughs> company that is uh, going to, yeah, going to Venus? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's this really, I have two passions and one is engineering and, and one is space. And when you combine those two things, inevitably you end up building rockets. So, um, you know, I started building rockets when I was, uh, was at school and, and, um, it was just a passion that grew and grew. And it, it kind of reached a point where, you know, I felt like, you know, I got to a certain level that it was, it was practical to you know, try and, try and build a, build a company out of it. Yeah. We started it in 2000 and 2007 and just, um, just bootstrapped the company for many years and, and then finally reached the point where it was feasible to go and raise capital. To, uh, to go and build Electron. And it's, it's funny looking back because, um, I remember when I went up to Silicon Valley to raise, raise the A round for a small, small launch vehicle. And, you know, nobody was trying to raise capital for a small launch vehicle. Like it just, there was, there was just nobody even thinking that that was a thing. Mm. And it was, it was super. Coastal Ventures, who did our A round, really took a, a big risk on us. And, um, you know, Vinod there is, it's like, well, Maybe there's a market for this, maybe there's not, but um, maybe these guys can do it, maybe they can't. So it was really, um, you know, very, very early. And then, you know, it, sort of November last year, I, I was I was scratching my head going, well, what happened, what's, <laughs> what's going on here? Because just huge amounts of capital into ventures that were just like the business plans required 300 launches to break even and all this sort of crazy stuff. And I'm just sort of scratching mm. my head here and said, well, what went wrong here? I mean, who's doing the due diligence on these deals? Because there's hundreds of millions of dollars of capital flowing into a dead end. So, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy time. So I guess it was just like the advent of CubeSats that, that kind of made the case because I guess back in 2007, that wasn't as much of a thing or if it was, I actually don't remember, but um, is that kind of like what changed things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you saw uh, just a, a large number of um, space companies um, be invested in by Silicon Valley. So, you know, you saw a lot of startups appear with some, some really compelling business plans and um and you know you've seen a, a you know growth of, of of a number of those companies but it's fair to say that the you know that the industry's still got a lot of growing to do um you know the, the numbers that everybody were you know was, was predicting with respect to you know satellites being manufactured and uh and, and things like that just just you know they're, they're certainly lagging but you know like anything you look at this there's a huge new greenfield there and it always takes time um to to develop so um you know, just a plot a, a steady course um, there, but you know, I think I think the market has got a lot to grow before that it's going to reach sort of the the crazy numbers that were um, that were originally anticipated. So, so I take it you didn't set out to start a rocket company. What were the other options? Like one of the questions that we get all the time is, you know, how do I uh, how do I find what I want to do with my life? You know, from, from students who are getting ready to pick a major or something like that. Like, mm. how did you land here? What, what, what could have been if it wasn't for this? So my original plan was to go and work for NASA or, or for Lockheed or one of, one of the, one of the big primes. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd always run multiple shifts in my life. And, and, you know, the day shift was, was always, always, always about the rocket. So, you know, I started off as a, an apprentice, apprentice tool and die maker and did my apprenticeship. And that was so that I could build better rockets. And then I went into the, uh, into the design office and learned CAD and FE and, um, CFD and all those things. And once again, they were all so I could build better rockets. And I went to a government research lab 
um, learned a whole lot of stuff about composites and advanced composites and that was all once again it was all directed towards the rocket so I feel from very early on um, I knew that, that this is what I wanted to do and it was just it was just kind of a fueling exercise of knowledge to get there but um, when I went to America and I, I went to America on kind of a one-month rocket pilgrimage and visited all the places that I dreamed of working, I kind of realized that actually they weren't doing the thing that I thought was was actually really, really important, the thing that I wanted to do. So uh, it was kind of a depressing time, really, because, you know, I remember flying back from New Zealand and it's nothing like a 12-hour flight to collect your memories and it would collect your thoughts. And basically that's when I decided that actually we'll just start Rocket Lab and and um, form the trajectory that, that I that I felt was important. Wow. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Our traditional penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, the easiest place to find me is uh, on Twitter at um, uh, Peter J. Beck and um, also at uh, rocketlab.com. And the ultimate question, uh, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be? One object with me into space? <laughs> oh, you can't answer me that question because it just... It depends. It depends on all the other circumstances. So, am I, am I in a space capsule? Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna say you're going to a commercial space station in Leo. I'm going to a commercial space station in Leo. The one object that I would bring, hmm, I'd say it'd be a camera. I think it would be a camera. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty hard one to to pass up. It's a nice yeah. camera. It would it would it would depend on the circumstances. You know, if if there was. A, it's kind of scant resources aboard, then I might bring an oxygen generator or if the toilet was kind of junky, then I'd bring some bags. <laughs> but Well, we generally assume that all that stuff works. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, okay, so so let's let's fast forward time. We're gonna put you in a uh in a hypersleep capsule and wake you up when the first commercial space station around Venus has been constructed. W- would you still bring a, a camera to Venus or would you wanna bring uh, you know, a science instrument or, I mean, what, if, if you could go that far out, what would you bring? I'd just bring myself. I think, uh, I think there's, there's no point <laughs> in taking a camera at that point because who are you going to show the picture to? Everybody that I know would be dead. So, so, you know, <laughs> just take myself. But I should be said that I have just enjoy yes, it. Yeah. Yep. I, I have, I have no desire to, to, to go to space, to be honest with you. I'd much, much prefer to stay here on Earth. I think the whole the whole concept of Plan B is is is, is flawed. Plan A is much better. Right. Well, fantastic. Um, thank you so much for um, spending this time with us. It, it's been great getting to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure, guys. So, moving on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have three winners, Jason Fries, the Greek, and Ben Hallert. So, the usual suspects. And the clue was top-heavy but retired. And I didn't know what that was about, but they did. So why don't you explain to us what that means? <laughs> yeah, so this week at Spaceflight History was the 5th of September, 1977. It was the launch of Voyager 1 atop the final Titan 3E. Thank you, Dennis, for putting this one in the document. Yay. It's really nice when I don't have to go look go searching for something because we already have it. <laughs> All right. Very welcome. So let, let's start by talking about the Titan. Uh, it's a Titan 3E. Um, it's also called, well, Titan IIIE or Titan numeral 3E. Um, and you'll also see it referred to as Titan 3 Centaur. Um, so if you don't know this off the top of your head, uh, Titan 2 is the Gemini launch vehicle. So Titan 3 is basically a Titan 2. 
um, with some upgrades. It was developed for the U.S. Air Force. Um, they wanted to be able to fly heavier payloads. And so what they did was they increased the wall thickness um, and some other uh, structural items to be able to support a larger upper stage, or I guess a more massive upper stage. They um, reworked some of the electronics so that the vehicle could accept guidance from, from the upper stages uh, like a third plus upper stage because Titan II, uh, the guidance uh, hardware was in the second stage. Um, and the second stage of the Titan III can also do its own guidance, but if you put something on top of it, uh, it can accept guidance from that as well. Uh, they removed, you know, they reduced mass by reducing, removing some uh, ICBM related hardware. They extended the second stage tanks into the some extra free space freed up in the avionics truss, which is interesting because the length of the second stage stayed the same, but the tanks got bigger. And they also added uh, solid booster mounts to the side of the vehicle. And uh, it's it might be interesting to note that like Titan II, the Titan III and the Titan III-E, the first and second stages um, use Aerozine 50 as their fuel. So, you know, we, we really don't see a lot of, uh, hypergols used these days, um, especially on two different stages of the vehicle. So the Titan 3E, well, it, it was answering a specific niche in the market, in, in NASA's market here. So, uh, NASA was waiting for shuttle to do their really heavy lift. Uh, kind of jobs. Well, shuttle was taking its sweet old time uh, getting the launch pad, um, partially due to funding issues caused by the Vietnam War. And so Atlas Centaur was kind of their workhorse at the time, but they wanted to be able to launch heavier payloads than Atlas Centaur could, uh, could put up. And so the idea came up to put a a centaur on top of a Titan III. And it actually turned out to work, even though it resulted in a top-heavy vehicle. Huh? Top-heavy? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> so the weird thing here is centaur has a wider diameter um, than the Titan II or the Titan III uh, first and second stages. So what they ended up doing was putting centaur inside of a fairing uh, when Centaur flies on an atlas, uh, it's exposed uh, to the elements, as it were. Um, so they put Centaur and whatever its payload is inside of a fairing, and they put that fairing on top of the Titan III second stage. It, then, they, they, then they have to have an inverted cone or an, an inverted conical adapter to get from the smaller diameter on bottom to the larger diameter on top. It looks very Kerbal and it looks very silly because the, the fairing is a significant portion of the vertical height of the vehicle. Um, it just, it looks weird. One of the interesting things about this though, is because they encased the Centaur in a fairing, it, it allowed them to install insulation that didn't need to be exposed to the atmosphere on ascent. Um, and because they were able to do that, they were able to put a, a better version of Centaur into space. The Centaur that flies on a Titan 3E um, has an onboard lifespan or a, an on-orbit lifespan of like uh, five hours or something, as opposed to like a half hour uh, when it's flown on Atlas Centaur. And that's simply because it uses cryogenic fuels. Um, and the better you insulate them, the longer they stick around. So uh, Voyager 1 was the final launch of the Titan 3E. There, there were seven total launches. This was the seventh. Um, and of course, we all know that 
Voyager 2 was also a thing. But Voyager 2 wasn't the final launch. Voyager 1 was. And this is uh, something that uh, I think more than one person in there this week in spaceflight history uh, answer pointed out. And it, it's a good one to know because it's not something, it's something that you have to know. It's not something that you can intuit. Voyager one was launched 16 days after Voyager two, but it was named Voyager one because it was going to get to its first target first and it was going to exit the solar system first. Um, so Voyager two actually got caught up. It got passed uh, by Voyager 1 before either of them uh, reached Jupiter. Uh, Voyager 2 led led the race up to the, the asteroid belt. Um, and then just after they exited the asteroid belt, Voyager 1 uh, took over. Now, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 flew very different uh, trajectories, as you might expect from, from, from them passing after they launched. Voyager 1 was assigned uh, a Titan flyby as its highest priority. Um, of course, they, they both went to Jupiter first and then to Saturn, um, and they really diverged once they passed Saturn. Uh, and that's because Voyager 1 wanted this really, really good Titan flyby. And in order to do that, it needed to fly under Saturn's south pole. That got them a great flyby of Titan, but then uh, it actually flung Voyager 1 up above the ecliptic, uh, which, you know, should be pretty intuitive to anybody who's played Kerbal Space Program. If Titan had not been so high a priority, Voyager 1 could have stayed in the ecliptic. It would not have been able to visit Uranus and Neptune like Voyager 2 did. However, it would have been able to do a Pluto flyby. And how cool would it have been to do a Pluto flyby in the early 80s? <laughs> it, it's sort of, um, what's the name of that one TV show where Russia lands on the moon first? Uh, For All Mankind? For All Mankind, mm. yeah. Yeah, so it, it's sort of this uh, less drastic alternative timeline <laughs> yeah. um, where we where we got a close-up of Pluto very early, but didn't get a close-up of Uranus and Neptune. If it wasn't for New Horizons, that would have been so bittersweet to be like, I don't know, we could have had a flyby decades ago. But Well, I mean, it, it was bittersweet until we flew New Horizons. Yeah, I guess, I guess that is true. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really nice that we got to fly New Horizons to Pluto instead of Uranus and Neptune. Um, because the sheer, you know, resolution power of the cameras that we have mm -hmm. now, boy, we did really good science just zipping past Pluto. And we wouldn't have had Cassini as we know it without this Voyager 1 trajectory. Ex right. Well, we, we could have actually, because Voyager 2 could have done a Titan flyby, which would have mean that it would have missed out on Uranus and Neptune. That, that's the trade off that I, that I was, uh, poorly uh, <laughs> talking about here. <laughs> so you could have uh, Voyager 1 do Pluto, or you could have Voyager 2 do Uranus and Neptune. Mm. If you have to do a fly, a, a really close pass of Titan, you could, you could have gotten Pluto, Uranus and Neptune and, and left Titan out. But I think Titan mm -hmm. was correctly prioritized here. Huh. I knew about the Pluto fly, but I didn't know about Voyager 2s. That's interesting. They chose wisely though. <laughs> yeah. The very first flight of uh, the Titan 3E 
that was a failure and it was because of a liquid oxygen turbo pump failure in uh, the Centaur. And what's, what's interesting is, it, is that it says that the RSO gave the destruct sequence or, you know, gave the destruct command at T plus 742 seconds. So that's like 12 minutes in. So what was going on there that he needed to blow it up in essentially in lower yeah. orbit? Yeah. Like that's strange to me. Like I'm wondering what that's There must all have about. been a risk that it was going to come down over Russia or something like that, right? Mm. Well, that that first flight of Titan 3E is is really interesting because the the engine failed and we didn't know why for like years. I think it was like literally like 5 years before we figured it out. The yeah. the thought was that um some ice or some other debris caused the engine to shut down, which which is quite logical. It turns out that wasn't it. <laughs> it was actually a bolt. One of the bolts that they used was in a and I think it was an engine mounting bolt, actually. I I, I could be wrong on that. But what happened was the bolt was recessed behind some other components and you had to use a very or you had to use an adapter on your wrench to be able to get down in there but the instructions uh, the assembly instructions said nothing about uh, this wrench extension mm. it, it, it just wasn't foreseen and then they learned the lesson oh we need to use an extension on here and never updated the instructions so the the guy who did that work retired um, never put it into the documentation and never told his successor or, or maybe didn't get a chance to tell his successor. So the next guy comes along and installs this bolt, doesn't use the extension and therefore doesn't tighten the bolt down all the way. Hmm. He, they were able to get it on there, you know, to some extent, but weren't able to put enough torque onto it. Uh, I'm assuming it just slipped out of the reach of the, of the wrench and they go, well, that's weird that I can't, you know, finalize the torque on here, but I guess that's as far down as it goes because the instructions say to use this specific wrench. Yeah. Um, and so that the bolt actually came off and, and that was what that, that failure was caused by. Wow. All for a bolt. <laughs> all, yeah. all for a, for, for a extension. wrench extension. This wasn't yeah. even flight hardware. This was something that was sitting in a tool, in a toolbox in the shop. Yep. But uh, anyway, yeah, that was just strange that you would blow up a second stage at T plus 742 seconds, which seems to me that that would be past. I mean, I guess it's not, and well, no, because it has boosters, but generally your second stage has, has already used up all of its fuel, but I guess maybe they shut the engine down and maybe they're, they were doing a restart or something. I don't know, but. So I could, I could look this up and figure it out for real, but just off the top of my head, um, Centaur is a third stage for Titan 3E. Oh, that's and, right. Okay. And in, in fact, sometimes they stack a fourth stage on top. They, mm -hmm. They put a, a star solid engine on there. And the Voyagers actually had those, you know, quote unquote, fourth stage engines. But the reason that it's quote unquote is because the 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 solid rocket was actually considered part of the payload and not part of the vehicle. But there were Titan 3Es that did fly with a star upper stage as part of the launch vehicle. But I, I think I, I think you're right. Um, actually, terminating the Centaur seems a little odd. All right, so for next week, uh, what is the clue for that? And I think, Dennis, you have this one for us. Yeah, the clue for next week in 1995 is 
Centenarian. Cool. So next week in 1995, Centenarian. All right. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch and one other thing. So our launch will be a September 1st or 2nd, depending on where you live. It's a Vega rocket that'll be taking a uh, small spacecraft mission service or SSMS proof of concept mission with around 50 microsatellites, nanosatellites, CubeSats. They got all their small satellites that you could want on there, apparently. All the different varieties. And so uh, this one had been delayed for uh, a while due to uh, a number of uh, things starting in March with the coronavirus all the way to, you know, June with high altitude winds. Yeah, and we talked about it last week, and I don't remember what scrubbed it. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing it was delayed more recently in August without uh, any details, but yeah. And, uh, well, in any event, um, this will be, uh, you know, a launch uh, at 0151.10 GMT or UTC. Uh, that's on the, the September 2nd. Or for those of you in the Eastern Hemisphere, maybe, um, or in the United States, it'll be at 9.51.10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time on September 1st, right, Tuesday. And so uh, this will be flying out of uh, Karoo at the Vega Launchpad uh, ZLV uh, in French Guiana. All right. And then next, this isn't a launch, but it's in support of a launch uh, on September 2nd. We're going to be seeing live coverage on NASA TV of uh, the FSB-1 booster test. So uh, FSB is the solid rocket booster for SLS. And FSB-1 is, obviously, we've seen a couple of different SLS solid booster tests but I think FSB-1 is like one of the first like full validations, like as close to flight hardware as they can as they can do. I, I'm not 100% sure. Hopefully we'll be able to tell you more next week when more information mm. is readily available to internet space schmucks like us. Anyway, so the test is taking place uh, at Promontory, Utah, which uh, we're pretty familiar with seeing uh, footage from there. And uh, yeah, again, so it's September 2nd. Um, at 2.40 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm guessing 2.40 p.m. is when the coverage starts. They don't have a T0 for the test listed on NASA TV. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the show, so let's deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check out our twitter or reddit for links for orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you